it's harder now for me to stay sober. Just saying that out loud, it's like, well, with the shit, I might as well just drink again. If that's the case, maybe I'm just too much in my head now. Maybe I overanalyze. You know, maybe I'm just so clear that it's actually freaking, it's like self sabotage. So, like, there, I think in a way, this is the rock bottom, right? Like, for me, it's the fact that I have to fight that daily because it, for me, I guess it was the success was the outside instead of what's inside. So, welcome to Imposters the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Cheryl Burke. Cheryl is an Emmy-nominated professional ballroom dancer, producer, and entrepreneur. She's best known for starring in 26 seasons of Dancing with the Stars, but she's also the owner of several dance studios, her own clothing line, and is the host of the podcast, Burke in the Game. Cheryl rose to fame at just 21 years old in 2006 when she was first cast on Dancing with the Stars. Since then, Cheryl has won the championship twice and has been a consistent favorite among the show's fans. This year, Cheryl announced her retirement from the show after 16 years, and with that, Cheryl is embarking on a new chapter. But while for many years Cheryl appeared to be at the height of her career as one of the most recognizable faces on a hit TV series, behind the scenes, she was suffering from a substance abuse disorder, something that she functioned with for years before finally deciding to do something about it. My full conversation with Cheryl Burke right after this quick break. Cheryl Burke, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Of course. Thanks for having me. I love your podcast. Thank you. So I want to take it way back. You fell in love with dance very early on. I believe you started ballet at four years old and then you discovered ballroom dancing around nine or 10. Yeah. Did you ever think that at that point it could be a career later in life? Never. And my mom made sure of it. Like my mom, <laughs> she knew that, you know, school wasn't, uh, something I wasn't book smart, put it that way. I was definitely street smart, but I wasn't book smart, nor did I have any curiosity. Um, at that time, I'd be a great student now, but, um, you know, dance, she made sure that I was in every possible curricular activity you can possibly think of from like soccer, softball, volleyball, basketball, until I shot for the other team. And then, uh, piano and dance was the one thing I never complained about except when I started growing out of my pink tights because I developed at a very young age into a young woman. And then my mom and stepdad wanted to find a sport for the family and golf wasn't cutting it. So ballroom dancing, it was. There we go. And when was it that you actually knew that it was going to be like your thing? What age was that? I was about 11 or 12 when I saw, you know, that you can actually take the competition world of ballroom dance to the next level and travel worldwide. And I clearly from the get-go was uh, very competitive, but in a good way, like more within myself, not other people. But I always wanted to be the best at what I could focus on, which was dance at that time. Let's fast forward. How did the Dancing with the Stars opportunity come about? And what had your career been leading up to that point? 
Wow. Okay. So ballroom dancing, it was like I lived two different lives. I was, uh, my mom made sure that, you know, I had to get a certain average grade at, in high school to have her support fully my dancing career because ballroom dancing as a sport is not cheap. And uh, my mom, you know, long story short, she came from poverty in the Philippines and created a company, a nursing company. And she was privileged enough to finally start seeing some money and therefore was able to, and I'm so grateful that she was able to support my dancing career. So for me, I wanted to take it to the next level, which meant that I needed to find a dance partner, which meant I had to go on tryouts. My mom had to sponsor people so they could come to the States. So I had partners from all over the world, from Finland, France, England, Denmark, you name it. I also lived in Denmark for a year. I followed my dance coach around, lived in Moscow uh, for a few months. And this was all happening from ages 13 to 17. Then I turned professional and my partner who I wanted to dance with, who ended up being my dance partner slash boyfriend, he lived in Harlem, right? So I had to move there. And in that era, I guess, when it comes to ballroom dance, that's where it was. The center of ballroom dancing was in New York. Prior to that was England. So I lived in England, you know? So like every summer I would go to high school. Then every summer I would be traveling and I'd spend my summers instead of like going shopping, you know, with my friends and going to parties. It would be just like living like an Olympian. Um, and I kind of hid that from my few friends I can count on one hand because I didn't have time to have friends. Why why do you why do you hide it from them? I was kind of embarrassed, I guess, um, because I was ballroom dancing. So when you hear the words ballroom dancing, you don't hear like uh, hot Latin <laughs> freaking, you know, dry humping. Yeah. You don't think anything like that. You you definitely think more like this is for my parents. Um, I was also in a very abusive relationship throughout most of my high school career, which I also had to hide my what I was doing for other reasons. But it really, you know, started from coming here to Los Angeles, doing a dance competition. There's a competition every weekend in every Marriott. You can possibly think of <laughs> airport Marriott hotels all over the country. And then, you know, you have the occasional out of the country, right? You've got Europe and that's like our Olympics called Blackpool. It's in England. And we'd go there every end of May. And then there were producers after the first season of Dancing with the Stars that went to the competition that my ex-partner and I were at and they needed more. They wanted to recruit more pro dancers. Louis Van Amstel, who was there from season one and actually came back this last season, danced with Cheryl Ladd he actually recommended that they interview me. So they came to New York, they interviewed me and I was just, a, had no identity. You know, ballroom dancing is a man's world. You know, man leads, woman follows. And I love the way that that looks. And, and when you execute it, it's beautiful. But in, on a personal level, obviously, you know, that's not the way it rolls. Totally. <laughs> so it was really hard for me to be independent. I was very codependent on um, the few men that were in my life, my dance coach being one and my partner at the time. And to um, be asked to do something without them was really scary for me. So thank God my ex was cheating on me at the time. And honestly, I don't think I would have taken this opportunity if it wasn't like that. So with Dancing with the Stars, you obviously became part of the show, the show took off, and then you were faced suddenly with kind of this spotlight and this just level of awareness from society of who you were, what you were about, that I could imagine being 
fairly uncomfortable for you, given you've described yourself as an introvert and openly struggling with social anxiety. And then you talked about how you started using alcohol to kind of numb the pains. It was was a way of kind of escapism from those feelings. When did your use of alcohol start to become a real problem? So I never drank until I was 21, until I moved here. Because like I said, we lived like Olympians. Um, that wasn't an option. Uh, I think I drank one smear off ice and I was like, Ugh, what's the point? And I'm also very, uh, I would like to say I'm a recovering control freak. Um, so I never really thought that I would ever get to the state of not knowing what I was doing. And that's what I, uh, my dad was an alcoholic. So he was functioning as I, as I was, as I am, will always be an addict. You know, it's a, for me, I believe it's a disease that I will have to deal with daily. And I am currently, but it was really hard with the, cause it was right away. As soon as I landed, it was like, I'm dancing with Drew Lachey. And during that time it was, you know, Nick Lachey's younger brother. And he was going through that divorce with Jessica Simpson. So it was quite a shock to my system. Um, Though I wasn't dancing with Nick, I was dancing with his brother, but they, you know, obviously are family, they support each other. And uh, I never went to a club in my life. Actually, that's a lie. I got snuck into a club when I was 13 and it was like at a Marriott. But uh, anyway, cut to, you know, I was so nervous, um, flashes, and there was tons. I've never seen anything like it still to this day. Um, it was like we were uh, running, it was like we were Princess Diana. Like we had Princess Diana in the backseat and it was like, it was crazy. I thought this only happened to huge movie stars. And then it was like every Monday nights that we would all go out. And this was like, so the first generation of pro dancers, we, we literally got shipped in from the competition world. And here we are getting free bottles. We're getting like completely treated like royalty. Did you enjoy that? Like, did you, did you I thought feed I did. off? Yeah. You know, there, but I only, I mean, it was surreal. I never was like, oh, look at my life. You know, I wish I would have, because then I would have really tried to be present, though I was yeah. obviously trying not to be because I was so uncomfortable. And you know, I never understood why I was able to dance in front of millions. And yet, honestly, if you asked me what my favorite color was, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, couldn't tell you. And it was always a battle trying to get me to sit down and do these master interviews for the show, because unless I was intoxicated, I had nothing to say or add to the conversation. (laughs) Yeah. And, and what, and why is that? Was that because you felt just a love, like where you were frozen in these conversations because you didn't feel comfortable. Like what, what was the cause of that? I really had no identity. I honestly, I didn't, couldn't answer the question. And I was really, I think I had no self-esteem because I wasn't great at school. I didn't feel like I was smart. didn't feel like my opinion mattered because it doesn't, it didn't in the competition world, right? Like it was always asked to my partner. He was the leader, you know? And so never was I like, oh, what's your opinion? Like I was never asked that. So I never really thought anyone cared. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it sounds like, especially before you would move to Dancing with the Stars and into the limelight, like when you were in the competition world, any kind of self-love or value you ascribed to yourself was based on what your partner's perception was of you at the time. Or my result of my, you know, how did I place? Did I win? And... Um, it was all outside sources, unfortunately, which we all know that is just not sustainable. Cheryl used alcohol to deal with the lack of social ease in these new situations in the spotlight. She says that it not only acted like a social lubricant, but it also helped to numb her anxiety and anything else she didn't want to feel. 
but because her involvement on Dancing with the Stars constantly threw her into these new and uncomfortable situations, her drinking became habitual. First, you know, I had these rules in my head, like, uh, don't drink. I, I was going to adopt my father's rule of not drinking before 5 p.m., and I broke that. I also wasn't going to drink alone, broke it. Um, wasn't going to drink when I woke up. I had to, to survive, because I felt like shit. And it was a constant uh, seven nights. It became seven nights a week. I mean, I, let me tell you something. I was a club rat by night and a ballroom dancer by day. And the reason why that two worked together for me was because I sweated out during the day. Then I felt great again at night. You know, it's crazy. And I, someone reminded me in the, my, like a few months ago that they remember me not owning a hanger. Yep. I'm shocked I showered. <laughs> and how long, like how, what was the, the period you would say of your life? How long was it that you were really in not a good place in terms of your relationship with alcohol? You know, it's, uh, I never really hit rock bottom. Okay. Like, I don't know what the definition of that. I know it's different for everybody, right? Like maybe it's getting arrested. Maybe it's losing everything. What's crazy. And I said this when I did red table talk with Jada, I said, you know, it's actually crazy. When you look at everything on paper, you look at it, you look at the success, whether that be whatever it is, right? Like I won my first two seasons. I, whatever I, you know, was in relationships. Now, do they mean anything? Not really, but like, still, if you were to look at it versus now you'd be like, wait, you were more successful when you were drinking because I was functioning. So my rock bottom was actually, and I still think that is a rock bottom. It's a version of, because if you, it's harder now for me to stay sober just saying that out loud, it's like, well, with the shit, I might as well just drink again. If that's the case, maybe I'm just too much in my head now. Maybe I overanalyze, you know, maybe I'm just so clear that it's actually freaking, it's like self-sabotage. So like there, I think in a way, this is the rock bottom, right? Like for me, it's the fact that I have to fight that daily because it, for me, I guess it was the success was the outside instead of what's inside. So I think in some ways, what you're saying is not that you wish you had a rock bottom because no, I would nobody say, does. but right. But what you're saying is because actually operating with addiction, but doing it at a high level, mm -hmm. um, provides, uh, what can be a confusing reference point for, for where you were. Yeah. If you didn't experience rock bottom and you were still thriving while being a functioning alcoholic, what was the point at which you knew you needed to quit? Um, it was the drinking every single day. My dad's death actually really woke me up. Um, I was engaged at the time and I also am very, um, hypervigilant, which is not necessarily a great thing. So I would always see my fiance at the time, just like, like just judging me. I would feel it, you know, whether that be sensitive, hypervigilant, maybe it's all the same thing, but like, I didn't like that feeling. And I also felt like I was never present I knew that with my dad's death, I was either, because this is my personality, as I said earlier, I was either going to hit complete rock bottom and just ruin everything and check into the nearest rehab, or I was just going to stop right away. And also I started developing rashes and hives randomly. Like I was always this proud Asian American woman who never got red, like, you know, ever. So I had a tolerance of, um, a professional drinker, which I think I was probably at that point, but I just knew that my dad's death was so painful that there was not enough vodka or Tito's I could have drank to numb that pain. So I might as well stop and I'm about to get married. So like, why continue? 
We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll get into what Cheryl's process of becoming sober looked like and the significant inner work she's done since making the decision to stop numbing herself with alcohol. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, Cheryl walked us through how her career got started and how suddenly being thrown into the spotlight on Dancing with the Stars kicked off an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, both because she felt uncomfortable when the cameras were on her, but also to deal with the stress of suddenly being famous. But after the death of her father and with the busyness that comes with planning a wedding, Cheryl decided to quit drinking. So my understanding is that you're four years sober now? Yes. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, what was the process for you of becoming sober? Like you, it sounds like that you kind of quit cold turkey, but was there a process beyond that? And where does the process of becoming sober then tie in with you basically figuring out who you are? Because it seems like a lot of this is so intertwined. You drinking was a function of you not even knowing who you were, not having internal self-love. So I would assume as you weren't drinking, it could be really provoking from an identity perspective. So how were, what was your process of navigating kind of both of these things that had a relationship with one another? That's a great question. Um, you know, I used to think I was wedding planning at the same time. So in a way I was so high off life that there was no need to numb though. I pushed the grieving process, which I'm still dealing with. I mean, I'm still grieving from when I got abused as a kid, like it still comes up because this is very new to me feeling my feelings. Um, but I was able to numb through busy being busy. I mean, I rhinestoned tic tac boxes. You heard me like literally, like it was so I, I rhinestoned everything that I could possibly think of. And I just made, and I had the best wedding planner in the world, Mindy Weiss planning the wedding. And yet I was micromanaging her and her team. And I, and I dove face first into this planning of the wedding. And, um, you know, it was easy for me to stop because of that. I don't know if I would have been able to at that time, though. I also know I am pretty much all or nothing. So, uh, it was a com competition within myself, but then it was also like, I actually feel great every day that I was sober. I was able to wake up early in the morning. I just had a clear head. Like when you have gone through the thinking that you need something like when you're codependent on a substance, right. And then you realize, Oh, when, once you've gone through the pain, which I think helped with the wedding planning, it just helped me push through that. Um, you're like, wait, why would I go back? Especially if I have hives all over my face, if I smell alcohol, right. So you mentioned before that for, let's call it the first half of your life, um, even maybe longer, your identity was very much the identity that society crafted of you. Mm -hmm. So whether whether it was your dance partners, whether it was people talking about you on social, et cetera, um, 
how were you able to, and I'm sure, you know, part of the answer will be, so an ever evolving process, still working <laughs> yes. on it, but how did you feel like you got control of call it moving the externally driven identity and value you feel towards yourself to being more intrinsic when your life is still lived publicly? It was stopping the drinking. Uh, for me, I think I a lot. Part of the reason too is not just one thing, right? I think I started drinking too because of how crazy my brain is sometimes. Like my the thoughts in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a huge advocate for therapy. I've been in therapy my whole life. Um, my mom put me into therapy when I got abused when I was a kid, um, sexually abused by this retired mailman who we put. I testified against, and so I was in therapy from like what four to nine, and then there was that break. And then moving here, you know, I had a good friend who recommended I go to therapy and then I took it upon myself. And then ever since then I was like, Oh, okay, this is helping me put my feelings into words and being able to understand and connect the reason why certain things, why I am a certain way because of what had happened in the past, you know, and that made a lot of sense. And then it was like, okay, I finally wanted to now evolve. Like, I'm like, what next? Like, okay, I understand why this is this and this and that. Okay, great. But like, what can I do to be better? And I credit my sobriety. I credit a higher power. I credit my sponsor. I credit, you know, there's so many different factors. I credit the bad marriage I was in honestly, because I only had myself. I couldn't go out with my friends anyway. It was, you know, we were under lockdown. Um, I was also, we still did Dancing with the Stars, though we had no audience and I was busy with that. But when I'm not busy doing other things, I do tend to turn inwards, I guess. Something you mentioned a minute ago is how you've recently started to feel your feelings more. Maybe it's with the podcast, maybe it's just some of the recent work you've done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's a very common thing. You know, everyone experiences trauma in their life of different yes. shapes and yes. forms. And I think one of the most common ways that people process is actually not by processing, it's by pushing deep into your body that inhibits you from really feeling fully. And there isn't necessarily an awareness of what your feelings are around these things because you don't have the capacity, the consciousness to feel them. Are there any specific strategies or advice you've gotten from your therapist or from others that have allowed you to better feel your feelings that maybe you were numb from earlier in your life? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to just reiterate that I, you know, my mother's Filipina. So the culture in itself, we don't feel feelings. That is not actually a sign of courage. That's a sign of vulnerability, like in a bad way, you know, and then the Brene Browns come out in the world. And, um, you know, at a time where I needed to hear that vulnerability was quite the opposite because that was scarier for me. I mean, my lazy brain, I like to say, which is my unconscious, I am, it's not easy for me to be vulnerable. It's not something that I turn to right away. I have to be so conscious of it. Because, you know, I've also seen my mom, um, you know, there's been lots of trauma in, within her life as well. And it hasn't helped not feeling her feelings. I, I don't want to get into detail, obviously, as to why I think this. But I see it now, the after effects. And it really, I, I wish I could help. You can't, right? Like in, in that sense. Um, but what I can do and what my therapist has said was, Take a look, 
right, at what you're seeing and ask yourself, is this what you want for yourself? Because when you don't feel, it is bound to have an effect on you physically and emotionally to where you just can't deal anymore. And that is not that is not what I want to do, what I want for myself or for my life um, whatsoever. It's interesting because it has been so much harder for me to feel. And then there's a trust thing that I have with myself too. It's like, do I really feel this? Did that really happen to me? Then now I'm going not necessarily through that. Hopefully I'm a little past through. However, there is only one way and that is through. And gosh, I am a mental health junkie. Like I've heard it all maybe twice now um, when it comes to podcasts, Michael Singer, freaking Brene Brown, but the most powerful sentence I've ever heard through the last four years of me really wanting to be curious and studying our own intelligence is that we're not our thoughts. And if God forbid someone could have said this or have taught this when I was in middle school or a toddler even, like, um, I think that would have saved a lot of my heartache and trauma. In case it wasn't clear earlier, Cheryl has been through significant trauma. When she was just five years old, she was sexually abused by an older friend of the family who her parents had believed they could trust. As Cheryl mentioned a few minutes ago, she later testified against him in court at only six years old. She's also been open about the fact that she's endured more than one abusive romantic relationship in her life. So the work she's talking about doing here on her mental well-being goes really far back. And it's something she's being courageously open about in some of her newest projects. Let's talk about uh, Burke in the Game. Uh, you launched it in the spring of this year, I believe. Mm-hmm. And on the very first episode, you mentioned being scared shitless multiple times. <laughs> Why was this such a scary endeavor for you to push forward with? Well, I've had three podcasts with iHeart um, the past couple of years. First with AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, who was my partner on Dancing with the Stars, and Renee Elizondo. And, you know, that was fine because I could hide behind the two men, kind of. And I didn't really have, I mean talk about somebody who couldn't talk or do an interview to now I can't shut the fuck up, (laughs) Um, actually. So, uh, you know, it is scary for me because first of all, this initial premise of the Burke in the Game podcast is supposed to be about me dating. It's basically the Bachelorette meets podcasting. That clearly wasn't the case because I am in real time, my, I've realized, and maybe this is because of uh, what I put into the universe is what it's bringing back to me, but I am very, it's very dramatic. My life is very (laughs) dramatic from the divorce and it happens to be a public one to being on Dancing with the Stars, being divorced during the premiere of the show, and then realizing, wait a second, I've got so much work I need to do and I am not ready to date at all. So it turned into kind of like a, Let's talk to people who could help me get there. And I think I'm finally there because I still have lots of work to do. But then I've also realized my healing process is never going to be like, okay, you know, come December 20th of 2023, I will be healed and ready to go. You know, this is a journey. I just need to find the right partner who wants to continue to evolve as well as an individual and will accept whatever it is that I am or whoever it is that I am. And I think that's really hard to find, or I haven't even thought that I could find that because I have never put it into words like this or thought I deserved it, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. How how do you think about spending your time or balancing your time? And what I mean by that is, 
you've done so many things professionally, right? You've done Dancing with the Stars. I believe you had dance studios. You have your podcasts. I think, didn't you launch a clothing brand at some point? A few. Yeah, yeah, a few. A few. It's like you have all... Of, <laughs> busy, all, busy, busy. Yeah, you have all of this shit professionally, but then on the personal side also, right? You just Not, said you're like <laughs> a mental health junkie. You've listened yes, to all these yes. podcasts. Oh, but literally. How I'm you, like a Buddhist. <laughs> how do you think about spending your time intentionally and how do you deal with the tug and pull of like maybe the the competitors thought that a minute spent working on therapy or mental health is a minute not spent working on your professional ventures oh this is my professional venture now i don't i don't necessarily separate the two i would say i'm considered a mental health advocate and that's where my passion lies so like dance was once for me as well you know first of all making this decision to hang up my dance shoes was the hardest decision of my life that i'm currently still trying to grieve um i never really processed me leaving the competition world because I went to a great into a great rebound, which was Dancing with the Stars, right? Like if you were to look at it, like you're like, oh, you went from this small little world to like, oh my God, you're yep. known and you're like, oh, it's all beautiful. I am still currently trying to deal with um, the fear and living in the uncertainty. I have been so... I, what do you think? The, what do you think the fear is? Like uh, hanging up the your uncertainty. <laughs> of not knowing, like I normally would have another rebound in place. Like I'd be like, okay, I'm leaving you because I have another contract signed somewhere else. That's when I left the first time around when I left Dancing with Stars, but this has been more than official because there was a whole farewell thing. And it was like, and a part of me wanted that because I have to hold myself accountable to not always have something like, it's like a relationship. You know, you always have the person there that just is there, you know, and yet you're looking for something better. Not not saying that this is what it is, but I just like I'm trying to make sense of it for other people listening. I'm not judging it. At the end of the day, it's just not good for me to continue on doing something with the same job title for the last 17 years of my life if I want to continue to grow as a person. It doesn't make sense. Final question for you is what are you most looking forward to in this next chapter of your life and career? Well, um, really practicing what I'm preaching. And, um, that is everything I just talked about in this interview. It's like, it is a daily practice. Um, I think loving my truly being able now, because now that I, you know, I went through this divorce, that was difficult. I divorced my job, which was the worst of them all of any breakup, any divorce I've been through, which is only one, but like, this was really difficult. I think I can look at myself in the mirror, really look at myself and, um, and accept me for me and, and, and say that I am proud of my, myself. I mean, this is a huge risk and I question it every single day. And I'm grateful that I was able to make this decision because this was um, a sign of growth and uh, me evolving into the human being that I want to be. So there you go. Well, being able to say uh, you're proud of yourself um, live in front of tens of thousands of people is a pretty... Uh, pretty special thing. So Cheryl Burke, thank you so much for thank joining you. Imposters. Thank you so much for having me. Cheryl's willingness to be so honest with herself and so vulnerable in front of the world is something I deeply respect. After years of being at the height of her career and also in many ways at the height of her suffering too, her ability to step away from the show that has brought her so much professional success and to go full force into something entirely different, it's brave. 
As we talked about in the interview, Cheryl is an extremely open book on her new podcast, Burke in the Game. Diving deep into her insecurities and areas of self-improvement for the world to hear is just one way in which Cheryl is embracing her new role as a mental health advocate. As Cheryl has said herself, her passion in life is to continue to share her story in hopes to help others know that they are not alone. And I think it's safe to say she's doing a pretty good job of that. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our producer is Michaela Heck. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 